I'd like for you to take the Word of God, please, and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And if you notice that your neighbor does not have a copy of God's Word, please feel free to share with them. I'd like for everybody to see what God's Word says. As we've said, we're going to be observing the Lord's Supper today. And I would like to issue a word of caution as we approach this time. And the word of caution is simply this. Let us not think that this ordinance is a way to salvation. Let us not think this ordinance to be anything other than what God intended it to be. And it's simply a memorial. It's not a simple memorial, but it's a memorial. And we'll talk about that this morning. We'll tie all of these things together. But I, I wanted to start off by saying, let us not think that observing the Lord's Supper is going to, to give us salvation. It will not give us a relationship with God will not give us an eternal home in heaven. And I want to be very clear before we start the teaching on this. I think by the end, everybody will understand, and many of you already do. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and verse number 23, the Apostle Paul is writing under the divine inspiration of God to saints, church members, at the church in Corinth, and there was some trouble in the church at Corinth. And Paul was writing, what Paul writes here and in other places, was to help correct those things which were going on at the church that shouldn't have been going on. And so here he's talking about the ordinance of the Lord's Supper in verse number 23, when he made this statement under divine inspiration of God. For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us to know what it is today that you want to communicate through your word. I pray that you'd quiet my soul, that you'd help me to collect my thoughts. And Lord, that you'd help me to speak only those things which you want spoken. Lord, I pray that you'd Give me boldness and give me clarity of thought. Lord, I pray that the message would be clear. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like for you to take note of this phrase, which I, how many times have we read it? How many times have I read it in 26 years of ministry? This year, in September, I've been saved for 40 years. It's hard to imagine. Some of you have been saved longer than that, but... I'd like for you to note this phrase that we find in verse number 23, the same night in which he was betrayed. That phrase stuck out for whatever reason to me. I'm going to be honest with you, Monday, this is the direction I was going, but it seemed God took me a different direction on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then yesterday God took me right back to this passage, and, and I was a bit frustrated because it, it was not where I was going until 
It started off there Monday, but I made my way back around to it Saturday. This phrase, the same night in which he was betrayed, takes us back to Matthew chapter 26. And so I would like for you to take your Bibles and turn back there to Matthew chapter 26 when the disciples and the Lord were sharing the Passover feast together. The Passover feast uh, uh, for, for us was, would have been on Friday evening, starting at 6 p.m. The Passover began, and uh, that would have run till 6 p.m. yesterday evening. And we see here in Matthew chapter 26 that the disciples and the Lord are sharing the Passover feast together. Matthew 26, verse 21, it says, And as they did eat, they're eating the Passover feast together. He said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. Jump down to verse 26, if you will. And as they were eating, again, they're eating the Passover. They're going through the ceremony and the methods of the Passover. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. A lot of times events make our time in this life memorable. We, we often live our lives between events. Um, birthdays, wedding anniversaries, uh, holidays, burial days. We kind of live, you know, we have these marks in our time. And these events make time memorable. The event which is referred to in our text as well as in Matthew chapter 26 was a holy day followed by a very very dark night. The Bible says it was the same night in which he, Jesus, was betrayed. That night was a, a memorable event. The Apostle John recorded the story in his account, and when he did, he noted that as supper drew to a close, Judas went out immediately out, and it was night. He brings attention to the fact that it was night, just like it does in our text. A memorable event. It was a dark night of betrayal. I began to think about that. I, be, I began to think, it just carries with it a melancholic tone, doesn't it? That, that scripture, the same night in which he was betrayed. It, it doesn't say the same day. It doesn't say in the warmth of the noontide sun. It, it says the same night in which he was betrayed. I began to think and ask myself the question, how did Jesus, how would Jesus use that darkness? I mean, Jesus was, is God, right? We agree. That's what the Word of God tells us. We'll mention that in just a moment as well. But uh, Jesus, being God, would have known who it was that was going to betray him. Really, all of the disciples would betray him ultimately, with the exception of John, who would be at the foot of the cross the crucifixion took place. Uh, he knew who was going to betray him. 
He knew that he was going to be falsely arrested. He knew that he was going to go through a mock trial. He knew that he was going to endure a horrible beating. He knew that he knew everything that he was facing within that next 24-hour period. So how do we see Jesus responding to this pressure? I know that later on, we know in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was under such great pressure that the capillaries inside of his, inside of his sweat glands burst and he bled through the sweat glands. But how did, how, what was Jesus' demeanor that night toward his disciples? How did he act? How did he confront that darkness? Did, did he fall into despair? Did he have this sense of failure? Did, did you, do we see him gathering themselves to the disciples and saying, Hey, fellas, I've tried. For three years, I've tried. Three and a half years, I've tried. I've tried to explain to you who I was. I've tried to show you through these miracles that I am the Christ. I've tried to, tried to get you to you know, do what you're supposed to do. I tried to get you to believe what, what you need to believe. And not just for you, but for all these people. But fellas, I guess I failed. Is that how he confronted that darkness? Did he pour mouth the prospect of his false arrest, his mock trial, his, his merciless beating and his murder? Do we, do we see Jesus doing that on the same night in which he was betrayed? The answer to that is no. That is not what we see Jesus doing. What does our text say that he did? What do these same events recorded in the books of Matthew and Mark and Luke say that he did? And they all say the same thing. On the same night in which he was betrayed, here's what he did. He took bread. He took bread. All through the gospel accounts, we see Jesus taking bread and giving it to other people. We often see Jesus feeding hungry mouths, always trying to teach every instance when we see Jesus using bread or using food to help to fill hungry mouths and hungry stomachs. We always see Jesus trying to show that he was, he was more than just about filling an empty mouth and an empty stomach. He was always using that as an, as an illustration. He was always trying to, through this bread, trying to illustrate that he did not come to save us from a, uh, from a bad short life, nor did he come to give us a good long life, but he came to save us from a bad eternity. That's, that's what he was showing. He was trying to, trying to teach that he was the bread of life. He pointed to the manna in the Old Testament and said, you know the stories of the manna? I am the manna. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. Over and over again, we find Jesus trying to illustrate that he did not come to give us a good long life, nor did he come to save us from a bad short life. He came to save us from a bad eternity. Without Christ, life ends up empty and without meaning. I think about the wisest man that ever walked the face of the earth. He had all the money, all the wealth he could want. He had all the women he could want, more than he needed, let me tell you. He got into the wine thing, you know, and all the wine, all the finest wines. He came to the end of his life and he, he said this, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Jesus said in Luke 9, 25, For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? Without Christ, life ends up empty and without meaning. Without Christ, there's a fear of death. You know that? Without Christ, 
Hebrews 2.15 tells us that only Jesus can deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That's a bondage, you know. Being afraid to die is bondage, and, and only Jesus is able to deliver from that fear of death. Without Christ, there's a fear of death. Without Christ, there's a lack of inner peace. I thought about the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 6, 14 and also 8, chapter 8 and verse 11. And, and he's speaking of mankind's promise and promotion of peace. And, and it says there in God's word saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And everybody's always offering this solution for peace on earth, you know. And if we just do this, we'll have peace. And all we want is just world peace. The only one that can offer true peace is Jesus because a life without Christ with a life without Christ, there's a lack of inner peace. Only Jesus is able to say, Peace I leave with you, and my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, I give I unto you. I don't know how to explain it other than to say that I've experienced that peace. I've experienced that fullness of Christ in my heart. Without Christ, there's loneliness. I thought about the psalmist who wrote, I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. Life without Christ is lonely. Without Christ, we're lost, the Bible says. That's why Jesus made the statement, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Without Christ, we're perishing. You know, Probably the verses, John 3, 15 and 16, which both talk about those that have Christ will never perish. Never perish. But without Christ, we're perishing. Without Christ, we're under God's wrath. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Without Christ, we're condemned already, John 3, 18 tells us. Without Christ, we're without hope. It's described in Ephesians 2, 12, as those without Christ having no hope and without God in the world. Without Christ, we're blinded by the devil, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe. Believe not. Without Christ, we're on the road to hell. You hear that? It's the broad way that leads to destruction out of Matthew chapter 7. Without Christ, we're on the road to hell. I'd like for you to take the Word of God, turn to Revelation chapter 20, and look at verses 11 through 15. And, and we're going to see this described, this account described in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, John said, I, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. John, uh, Revelation 20, verse number 11. And there was found no place for them. He's talking about those without Christ. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's a description of the end of the person that is without Christ. Without Christ, we're dead already in our trespasses and sins. And so over and over again, we find Jesus taking bread and trying to illustrate that, that he did not come just to give us a good long life, nor did he come to save us from a bad short life. He came to save us from a bad eternity. That's what he, why he came. So let's go back to the original question. 
What does Jesus do the same night in which he is betrayed? What do we see him doing? We're going to talk about three things Jesus did to turn that dark night around. Number one, what did Jesus do the same night in which he was betrayed? These go fast. Ready? Number one, he gave thanks. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. What did Jesus do the same night in which he was betrayed? He gave thanks. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 24 tells us, And when he had given thanks. Do you see that? What do we find Jesus doing the same night in which he was betrayed? We see Jesus giving thanks. No despair, no sense of failure, no poor mouthing, only giving of thanks. That's just kind of the way Jesus is. Really, that's the way we should be. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23 says, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. So the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, gave thanks. Number two. Told you these were going to go fast. He sang a song. He sang a song. Now to see this, we must go directly from the beginning of this account to the ending of it. And we won't find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 because it would have been beyond the scope of the lesson that the Apostle Paul was trying to teach to the church at Corinth. And so in order to see this, to find this, that he sang a song, we must look to the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. And you can go to either one, Matthew 26 or Mark 14. They say, both say the exact same thing. Matthew 26, 30 and Mark 14, 26 tells us that at the end of this account, the first thing we see him doing is giving thanks on the same night in which he was betrayed. The, the second thing we'll talk about that we see him doing on the same night in which he was betrayed is that they sung an hymn. And when they had sung an hymn, Matthew 26, 30 or Mark 14, 26, and when they had sung an hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Now in my mind, I would imagine it would have been a doleful song. Maybe a sorrowful song. Maybe having just been given that picture of the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, they would have gone out into the Garden of Gethsemane, to the Mount of Olives, maybe in a, in a sorrowful, melancholic spirit. But I didn't stop with that. I continued to think about it a little bit more, and I looked up the word hymn. I thought I knew what it meant, and it turns out I didn't know what it meant. Meant. Good grammar. I didn't know what it meaned. Meant. We'll figure it out later. The word hymn refers to a song of victory and celebration. The Hebrew word for hymn means the great Hallel. That's what it means. The great Hallel. Hallel is where we get our word Hallelujah come, where, where the word Hallelujah comes from. Hallel means praise. Yah means Jehovah, and so we have Hallelujah. means praise Jehovah. It's a Hebrew word. This hymn would have been a victory song, and come to find out, it was probably, as I studied this a little bit, it was probably one of the Pascal songs, a song that they use, the songs that they use in the Passover. 
It was a Passover song, and it would have been a selection from Psalm 113, 14, 15, 16, 17, or 18. One of those psalms. It would have been a song chosen from that particular group of songs, a celebratory Passover song. Now, isn't that an unusual thing? We sing retrospectively about victory in Jesus because we knew what happened. We look back to the record of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So we look back to that. We look retrospectively at that. And so the, our songs look from a different direction. But think again, they're, they're coming from a, a much different perspective. Jesus knows that he is going to be betrayed. It's already taking place. Judas has left the room, gone off into the night for 30 pieces of silver. He was going to lead the mob, the, the arresting uh, agents to Christ. He was going to betray him that way. When that would happen, there'd, there'd be a little scuffle and all the other disciples would, would, uh, would uh, betray him as well. He'd be taken, he'd be given a false trial, they'd pay off witnesses, and, and, and finally they'd get the information that they wanted to, and they'd accuse him of, of blasphemy. They would take and, and cover his head, and they'd buffet him with their hands. I mean, he knew everything that was going to take place. And yet we find him singing a victory song. That just seems strange, doesn't it? Who gets happy and sings about the trials and the troubles that they're about to face. Who does that? Jesus. Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, gave thanks and sang a victory song. And now, this is where we're going to focus for the remainder of our time together. Number three, he founds a simple memorial. He founds a simple memorial. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in verse number 24, the Bible says, When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. If you're in the habit of marking your Bible, would you mark this phrase, this do in remembrance of me? After the same manner also, he took the cup. When he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it. Underline this as well, if you're in the habit of doing that. In remembrance of me. This do in remembrance of me. And in remembrance of me. It's a memorial. It's a memorial. This memorial, Christ founded that night, the same night in which he was betrayed, is a commemoration. It's a look back. It's a look back to the person of Christ. The fact that he is co-equal in power, authority, and existence with God. Jesus is God. It's a look back. It's a look back to the beginning of creation where the Bible tells us that by him, Jesus, speaking of Christ directly, were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and by him, the Bible says, all things consist. Why? Because he's God. He's God. Look back to the fulfilled prophecies of Christ. You can go back to 700 more plus years before the birth of Christ and find out that every prophecy that was given, given concerning the Lord Jesus Christ is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ up to, up to the rapture of the church and his second coming. Every prophecy is fulfilled to the minute detail. Every minute detail is filled in in the prophecies of Christ by the man named Jesus that we read about in the Bible. 
It's a look back to the life, ministry, and the completed work of Christ at Calvary. How that he shed his blood for the remission of sin. And that is, our faith is not a do faith, our faith is a done faith. And it's a look back to the broken body, as we'll speak of in just a few moments as we partake of this ordinance of the church. The broken body and the shed blood of Christ. Without shedding of blood is no remission. All of those Old Testament pictures that we find of the slaying of animals and the shedding of blood and the shedding of blood and the shedding of blood pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. All of those that lived in that Old Testament time and that, in that economy and that, in that dispensation looked forward to the Messiah coming, looked forward to this one that would offer up his own blood for the remission of, of, of sins, of the sins of mankind. And all look forward to that and Jesus fulfilled that. It's a look back. It's a commemoration, look back to the life ministry and completed work of Christ at Calvary. It's not only a commemoration, it's a communion. A communion. Some churches call this communion. Some call it Lord's Supper. I think it's fine to use either one. We don't call it a sacrament. It's an ordinance of the church. We do not believe that these elements become the body and blood of Christ. We don't believe that. The Bible doesn't teach that. We've come all the way to realize that this is an ordinance. It's a, it's a memorial of commemoration. It's a communion. It's a look. But when I say communion, I mean it's a, a look to the present. When you commune with somebody, you're, you're in the present. You're with them. You're, you're talking back and forth. You're, you're sharing time with one another. And so this memorial is not only a commemoration, a look back. It's a look to the present. It's a, it, we cannot commune, for example, with a body whose soul has departed. There's only one person alive. There can't be communion. We can't communion with a person whose soul has departed their body. Commune is where we get our word communicate from. Communicate. Oh, have you ever talked to a stubborn teenager? You ask them a question, they don't want to answer you? Maybe a child, a stubborn child? When you talk to a stubborn child that won't answer you, are you communicating? You're not communicating. It takes two willing participants to communicate. It takes two living people to communicate. The fact that this, is, this communion shows us that there's two willing participants at least and two living people in the Lord's Supper. A living Savior and a living saint. The fact that this is communion shows us that Jesus Christ has bodily resurrected from the dead is alive and we can communicate with him. And he can communicate with us. It's a communion. In Matthew chapter 28, speaking of the bodily resurrection, I was reading this morning in my devotions that the ladies, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, when they had gotten to the gravesite where Jesus had been laid and they saw all the events that took place there, we read of it this morning, a little bit further down in verse number 9, it tells us that as they went to tell his disciples what they had found at the sepulcher, behold, Jesus met them saying, All hail! They, the one that they, they were there. They were there when the, he was hung on the cross. They were there when he 
languished in pain. They were there when the Roman soldiers came around to break the legs of them and they found that Jesus was already dead and they stuck the spear into his side and that blood and water came flowing out. They were there. They saw it. They saw his lifeless body taken down from the cross. There was no life in him. When he said, it is finished, they were there. They saw the darkness that fell across the face of the earth. By the way, a seismic and solar event that was recorded by scientists a long ways away from there in 33 AD. Go imagine, imagine that. It's recorded in history. They were there. And so they went with the spices because they were in haste to get Jesus down from the cross and the others down from the cross because the Sabbath day was approaching and they, they hastily yet carefully wrapped him up and stuck him in that grave and then they were going to return again with the spices to embalm him. But they got there and there was nobody there. And they go running to tell the disciples what the angel told them, the message the angel delivered to them to give to the other disciples. And they run upon this man and, and Jesus says, All hail! Bible says they fell down and held him by the feet. He bodily resurrected. Spirit doesn't have feet. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? We, we, as living participants, those that have been made alive, that are not dead in our trespasses and sins, are, and are willing participants in this time together, we commune with each other, but we also commune with another living person, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. We commune with him. So this memorial is a, is a look back. It's a commemoration, but it's also a communion. This memorial is a communion between living people, saved people, and the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. A person that is dead in their trespasses and sins cannot commune with a living Savior. You see, there's not two willing living participants. This is a communion. What we observe today is a communion between living people. Uh, this is a table for dead sinners who have found their need of a living Savior. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this table is reserved. If a person looks upon themselves as being holy and unspotted, there's no place for them at this table. If a person is proud, lifted up, and thinks of themselves above others, there's no place for them at this table. If a person thinks that they do not need God, that they, that they do not need the washing from sin in the blood of Christ, there's no place for them at this table. This table is reserved. This table is reserved for those who from the heart believe that they're sinners. They believe, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This table is for those who from the heart receive the payment that the Lord Jesus Christ made for their sin by his shed blood and death. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This table is reserved for those who turn from everything they thought would give them a relationship with God and place their faith in Christ alone, who believe the Lord Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, the life, and that no man comes to the Father any other way. That's who this table is reserved for and no one else. This memorial is a Commemoration and it's a communion 
But this memorial is also a commitment. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. It says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. This memorial is a commitment. It's a look to the future. It's a look to the past. It's a look to the present. And it's a look to the future. It says he is alive. It says he is alive. This table is reserved for those who believe that the Lord Jesus Christ resurrected bodily from the dead and has the power to give life, eternal life, to all who believe. They believe what it says in Revelation 1.18, where it's written, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. They believe, Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with a heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with a mouth confession is made unto salvation. You see, this memorial says he's alive. Not only does it say he is alive, but it says he's coming again. If we believe... As I'm speaking to the Christian right now, those that have trusted Christ, those that I've described that this table is reserved for. If we believe that he is alive and coming again, it begs a commitment. A commitment to obedience. It's a table of commitment. This table is reserved for those who are in obedience to the word of God. Go back to our text for just a moment and look at a few more verses and we'll wrap this up. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body." Quickly, what, what does this mean in verse number 29, to discern the Lord, Lord's body? Discern means to recognize. To not discern means to not recognize. So here's what we're talking about. If we approach the Lord's Supper as believers, we've trusted in Christ, we've done We've described here, we've placed our faith and trust in Christ alone as our only hope of eternal salvation. We believe he's resurrected from the dead. We believe in the person of Christ. We believe he's God. We believe that his blood is sufficient payment for our sins. We believe that he shed his blood for us so that we, we could be saved. We believe all that. And, and there's been a time in our life when we've communicated that to God. God, I believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and life. And I place my trust in him alone. If we've done that, we've done that. We approach the Lord's Supper knowing that we're in disobedience to the Word of God in some area, any area of our lives. We are not recognizing the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm talking to the believer right now. It's a table of commitment for the believer. If we approach this table and we take... Paul's writing to Christians here. 1 Corinthians 11. And if we approach the Lord's Supper and partake of the Lord's Supper knowing that we're in disobedience to God's word in some area of our life, we do not have a correct view of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. He's God. 
The weight and seriousness of his completed work at Calvary is not registering with us if we approach this table lightly. If we come to this table that way, we will be accountable for it. We will be judged. That's what it means when it says in our text, He that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation, judgment to himself. That's what the word means, judgment. Not discerning the Lord's body. Not, not correctly identifying who we're talking about here. The broken body and his shed blood. We're going to end the message on, on that grave tone. And we're going to prepare now to take the Lord's Supper. Let's not take it too lightly. Let's be sure that we have a reservation at this table. We're going to take our hymn books and turn to song number 294. And we're going to handle the end of this service just slightly different. Brian's going to come and he's going to lead us through several verses of the invitation hymn, Just As I Am, 294. And as the piano begins to play... Listen very closely, please. This ordinance is very serious. One that should not be taken lightly. Now, I can't judge you. The Bible says, let a man examine himself. And that's what we need to be doing right now. We need to be examining ourselves. Outside of a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, nobody is worthy to share this table. Nobody. If we walk in a disobedience to His Word, we're not worthy. And it is because we're not worthy that we're invited to come. Isn't that amazing? It is because we're not worthy that we're invited to come. Before we take of the Lord's Supper, will you come? We're going to sing a couple verses of 294. And as we do, let's examine ourselves. Shall we? Let's sing.